John 5 in your Bibles, please. We will be studying verses 1 through 23 this evening. The topic, if we would want to call it that, is Christ healing the impotent man. The question I'm asking, and it is the title of the sermon, is whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? As we look at the scripture, both this week and next week, we're going to see why this title is what it is. We'll only uh, get about halfway through the account this week. By nature, I, your pastor, am a somewhat non-confrontational person. When I was younger, my solution to this problem of being somewhat non-confrontational was to remain neutral on just about as many issues as I could. When people had arguments, controversies, whatever it was, I tried my best just to stay out of it, to stay neutral, to avoid confrontation. Even at times where I had opinions, I did not feel any particular compulsion to share my opinion, much less argue my opinion. Now, there are some people who would be listening to this and saying, Pastor, that doesn't even make sense to me because you are a confrontational person and that's just your nature and that's great, that's good. I am not one of those. But you know, as I got older, I learned that there are certain times in life where people must simply take sides. It's okay to stay neutral on many earthly things. I don't need to have an opinion per se on sports. I don't need to have an opinion on fashion. It's even okay to stay neutral oftentimes in areas such as politics. But when it comes to spiritual things, when we step into the spiritual realm, the Bible teaches us very clearly that at the end of the day, everyone picks a side. No one can stay spiritually neutral because everyone is confronted with the eternal consequences of the spiritual realm, with spiritual consequences. And so in relation to spiritual things, Jesus Christ would say in Matthew 12, 30, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Painting this clear picture between those that are with him and those that are against him. And so this evening I ask a question in relation to John 5, whose side are you on? We'll walk through verses 1 through 23 this evening, and as we do so, I encourage you to search your hearts carefully. Now, it won't be toward until near the end that we, we see what it is that I'm asking you, are you on this side or are you on this side? But bear with me as we learn uh, many things about this passage, and we will apply it as we get toward the end. See, I'm not speaking explicitly of salvation here, but... Rather, I'm speaking explicitly and specifically of our tendency in our hearts to be loyal to religion above being loyal to the God that has redeemed us. And we'll see that as we continue. So let's look at a couple of principles this evening as we ask this question, whose side are you on? The first one, in verses 1 through 9, I would like to highlight first of all in regard to this that your weaknesses or your weakness magnifies God's strength. Your weakness magnifies God's strength. Look with me at the first nine verses of John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, 
There is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the movement of the water. Moving of the water, excuse me. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Today's account, as we look at it in John 5, comes chronologically after that which we had seen in John 4. We know this from the first verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. So after the events of, of course, we saw the Samaritan woman at the beginning of John 4. And then last week, we explored that deep contrast between the reception of the Samaritans and this necessity of the Galileans that they would see a sign. And so here we are back in this after this idea where it is sometime after these events they are taking place in fairly chronological order and Jesus is journeying back to Jerusalem for another feast. Now we mentioned before that there were three feasts per year that Jewish men were required to attend. They were required to attend the Passover. That would have been late March, early April. They were required to attend the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. And then they were required to attend the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been sometime in the fall. Now, in John 2, we saw the Passover feast occur. We remember that, John 2, the Passover. John 3 and John 4, as we understand it, come in fairly rapid succession following the Passover. You remember the timeline. Jesus Christ goes down to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. While he's there, he heals many people. Immediately after this, the, Jesus Christ goes out and he begins baptizing with his disciples. And the Pharisees are asking John, are contending with John. Oh, this is after Nicodemus. Nicodemus was at that same time uh, in Jerusalem. Jesus goes. Now the, the Pharisees are contending. Jesus Christ hears about that. He says, I need to go up to Galilee, but he must need to go through Samaria. He goes through Samaria on his way to Galilee. That leaves us in John 4. Well, now we have the next feast. We don't know which feast it was. It's either, most likely, some people believe that this is another Passover feast. That's how they get four Passover feasts in Jesus Christ's ministry. I do not think so. I think that it's probably either a Feast of Pentecost or a Feast of Tabernacles. I would say probably Tabernacles, which would have made it um, sometime in the fall as opposed to Pentecost, though we cannot know. The scriptures tell us that by the sheep market in Jerusalem, there was a pool or a fountain, as we might call it today, and it was called Bethesda. Now, the word Bethesda in the Hebrew literally means house of mercy. Beth is the Hebrew word for house, so we see that in many places. You recall uh, the name of a very prominent city all throughout the Old Testament, Bethel, meaning house of God. Beth being house, El being God, Bethel, house of God. This is Bethesda, house of 
mercy. Now, the fact that John is explaining this in such detail, he's explaining that Bethesda is a pool. He's explaining that there were porches there. He's explaining that it was by the sheep market does again indicate to us that John is not writing to a Jewish audience. He's not writing to people that already knew the, the city of Jerusalem. He's not writing to people that were familiar with Jerusalem's customs. He was not writing to people that were familiar with Jerusalem the city. If he had been, then he wouldn't take the time to explain about this pool of Bethesda. They would have known about it already. Since he's taking the time to explain, that once again helps us understand that he's not writing to a specifically Jewish or uh, uh, an audience that, that would know about Jerusalem. Now, if you recall from our study way back when in Nehemiah, we studied and we looked at the map and we remember we saw where the sheep gate was and we saw where all of these various gates were. The sheep gate was located on the northeast side of Jerusalem. So if we're looking at a map of Jerusalem and we've got north, south, east, and west, it would have been up here in this corner of Jerusalem. That is where the Sheep Gate was. So that is the general region where the Pool of Bethesda would have been. This is a, a good place for the Sheep Gate because it's close to the Temple Mount. And of course you want the Sheep Gate close to the Temple Mount because that's where they need the sheep. Now the pool had been fitted with five porches. These five porches were covered. And so we're talking about five areas that were paved perhaps with stone and they had coverings over them to shade from the sun those who were sick and those who were lame as they rested and waited for the waters of Bethesda to stir. Now the text tells us that this was a place of great miracle. At a certain season, we do not know how often that season was. We do not know if it was once a day, once a week, once a month, once a year. We don't know how often that was. It simply says that at a certain season, an angel would come down and would stir the waters of the pool of Bethesda. When these waters were stirred, the first person that would enter into that pool of Bethesda would be miraculously healed of whatever disease he was afflicted with. Now the text focuses on one particular man. This man had been afflicted with some infirmity for 38 years. We do not know from the text exactly what the infirmity was. However, we do know that whatever this infirmity was, that it must have affected his ability to move. Because when Jesus Christ questions him on it, he says, I have nobody to take me and put me in the pool when the waters stir and as I'm on my way somebody else beats me to it and so he has some mobility perhaps his legs don't work and he can drag himself with his arms or perhaps he's uh, whatever the case may be he has a disfigured leg and he's very slow in getting up and very slow in getting going but whatever the case is uh, he does have some mobility issue perhaps some paralysis or a muscle problem well, Jesus, we see as he is now in the city of Jerusalem for this feast, approaches this man. Knowing that he has been in this state for 38 years, he asks a question which we would almost call obvious. Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? Well, of course he wanted to be made whole. He's been sitting by the pool of Bethesda now for some years, we would assume. It doesn't say exactly how long he'd been sitting there, just that he'd had the infirmity for 38 years. 
course he would want to be made whole. This is why he sat there. This is why he sat near Bethesda. But if he had been sitting by the pool, presumably for numerous water stirrings, the question that would naturally come into our minds as we read the text is, why hadn't he already been able to be uh, in the water to be healed? Well, the impotent man says why. He cannot move quickly enough under the circumstances. He didn't have any family or friends to assist him. And as the water stirred, someone else beat him to it. Jesus, hearing the plight of the man, doesn't really debate with him or doesn't really further ask him any questions on his desire to be made whole. He simply says in verse 8, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now at this moment, this man had a decision to make. He was weak. We could probably even call him helpless. I believe his own description of his state would call him a pretty helpless man. He had tried everything in his own power to heal himself. His strength had failed. His family and friends had failed. And so when Jesus told him to rise, his decision was immediate and his decision was decisive. He obeyed Jesus' command. He was immediately made whole. He took up his bed and he walked. He did what he was told to do. He listened to the command and he responded to the command in faith. Now as we consider this tremendous miracle, we can apply it in a couple of ways. We can carefully apply it to a salvific context, to the idea of salvation. A man who finally recognized he had no ability in and of himself, but he had ability within the power of Jesus Christ to see his infirmities healed. He was, was not healed until the time where he did what Jesus Christ had told him to do. Jesus could have told you, him, take up your bed and walk, but if the man would have said, no, that doesn't work, it doesn't work that way, I'm just going to stay here until the next time the pool stirs, well, then he never would have received the, the benefits of Jesus Christ's healing power upon him. But he didn't. He exercised faith. So we can make that application. However, I would urge you, should you ever uh, attempt to do so, to be very careful. The application breaks down fairly quickly because the man was sitting at the pool of Bethesda and while he did not have the strength to heal himself by getting himself into the pool, every single time that pool stirred, somebody else did have the strength to get into that pool. And so we see that the analogy to salvation can only be limited, if we want to think of it that way, to this one incident between Jesus Christ and the man, and we cannot apply it to the entire situation because we did have people with infirmities who were healed outside of the power of Jesus Christ, certainly through the power of God, through the angel, of course, but we need to be careful if we were to apply it in that way. However, I believe that as we look at this truth this evening, we can certainly and very safely apply this miracle to our own lives as believers, and we can do so in a less guarded way. This man was absolutely weak in his own strength. He could not even drag his body fast enough into the pool, much less walk into it. But what we learn from this man's circumstance as we compare Scripture to Scripture is that God's strength is magnified in your weakness. Where you are at your weak, weakest point, that is where God's strength is magnified the most in your life. When you are or when you reckon yourself to be absolutely unable to bear your own burdens or do what is asked of you, that is when God's strength is magnified in your life. 
I think we would be remiss if we made such application without mentioning 2 Corinthians 12. Paul testifies of himself in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was a man of tremendous ability. However, he found himself with an ailment that he had no control over. An ailment that he called his thorn in the flesh. Many suspect it was an eye issue, uh, a terrible issue with his eyes, made it hard for him to see, uh, potentially disfiguring, but we do not know for sure. We can know, however, that this thorn in the flesh was terrible to live with and extremely grievous to Paul. So much so that he, in uh, his faith and desire, and uh, just desired to see this thorn in the flesh removed, prayed three times, thrice, as the scriptures say, that God would remove this infirmity from him. And I think many of you probably recall God's response in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He told Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. As Paul heard this, He recognized that God's plan was for him to have this thorn in the flesh, at least for that time. Certainly God could heal him if God chose to do so, but at this time that was not God's plan. God said, Paul, you have this thorn in the flesh, but my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul would say in verse 10, when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul had some strong lessons to learn. See, because Paul was such a wise man, such an intelligent man, such a charismatic man, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a leader among men, a man who people tended to follow, a man who was extremely smart, extremely capable, and extremely charismatic. Therefore, there's a great tendency in the heart of Paul, there was a great tendency to do things in his own strength. And so God chose a way in which he was able to humble Paul. And Paul recognized this and said, when I am weak, then am I strong. And so as we apply this first point this evening, we ask, I ask you, do you find yourself facing circumstances that you simply cannot handle? Do you find yourself with a health issue that you cannot handle? Do you find yourself with a a weakness that you struggle with? Maybe it's a weakness in Learning, Maybe it's a weakness in physical ability that you struggle with, that you wish you could overcome, that you feel like is a hindrance to you, possibly even a hindrance to your ministry. Your pastor has these in his own life. Your pastor has told you just this evening that he is a fairly non-confrontational person by nature. Well, that can be a problem as a pastor. It can be a problem where instead of desiring or expecting or doing what I need to do to step up and rebuke sin, I'll just say, you know what? Maybe I'll just take a step back. Pretend like it didn't happen. Maybe I'll just avoid that confrontation altogether. We all have weaknesses in our lives. Does it frustrate you to find that you do not have the strength in yourself to do what you desire to do, be it physical or be it spiritual. Well, if we can learn something from this historical account of the impotent man, it is that God's strength is magnified in your weakness. You don't need to be able to do everything because you have a God 
that is able to do everything. You don't need to be the best. You don't need to be perfect. Perhaps it is a physical infirmity. You have a health issue. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. God knows. God knows. Or perhaps you're sitting in this room today and you're saying, Pastor, you're talking, and you know what? I have yet to come across anything that I can't do. You're trying to tell me that I have weaknesses and that there are, are perhaps things in my life that, that, that I think about and I say, oh, I wish I could do that, but I can't. But Pastor, I can't relate. I can just do anything I put my mind to. I really haven't found anything yet that I'm not good at. Well, for you, I have an application as well. May I just encourage you to stop thinking that way? May I call to your remembrance that just because you can do something in your own power doesn't mean perhaps you ought to do it in your own power. May I remind you that sometimes it is like Paul, those who are most capable who find themselves doing things outside of God's power and trying to do things within their own power instead and therefore stripping all spiritual value and spiritual effect from that gift that you have because you're so intent on doing things in your own power. Imagine if your pastor decided that he was going to grow this church. After all, I can be charismatic. I can do the things that need to be done to get people interested. I'm going to grow this church. Well, could I do it? Am I physically capable of doing the things that would cause our numbers to increase? Well, certainly, I, I think I am. I think I could do it. But would my capability, would my ideas, would Pastor Wickler... That his capabilities yield that which is necessary to produce a God-honoring church. Well, I would think not. As we look at scripture, God says that he will build his church. As we'll look at in just a few weeks in Psalm 127, that it is God that builds the house. It is God that watches over the city. And so if I just rely upon myself and my own abilities and I say, I will, I will throw this church upon my back and I will carry it up the hill and I will make everybody in Buffalo love this church, perhaps I could do it. But I shouldn't do it. Because God builds this church. God's way. God's time. I should rather recognize my weakness and my personal inability to build God's church and allow God's strength to be magnified in my weakness, allow God's strength to work through my abilities to build God's church God's way. And so we saw and see, first of all, in verses 1 through 9, that your weakness magnifies God's strength. Your weakness magnifies God's strength. Well, now we come to the conflict. Why was this Miracle mentioned in the book of John. Well, recall our two themes that we have running through the book of John. The vein of belief and the vein of unbelief. And with every, it seems, presentation of belief, we see an equal and opposite presentation of unbelief, do we not? Every time we see Jesus Christ doing something and men and women coming and believing on Him, we see a response, a backlash 
to Jesus Christ's ministry. And that's what we're going to see again. And that is where we are going to find our question, whose side are you on? So look with me second. Your purpose is to honor God, not religion. Your purpose is to honor God, not religion. Let's read verses 10 through 23 together. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, is, it is the Sabbath day. Remember, he's carrying his bed and walking. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, and he, uh, he answered them, He that made me whole, the same saith unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that? Which saith unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk. And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus has conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that he that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that he may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. So, not everyone was impressed with this miracle that Jesus Christ performed. We see again this group, a group which we've seen numerous times now in the book of John, called the Jews. Most likely made up primarily of those who were Pharisees. These Pharisees see this man healed, carrying his bed, and they rebuke him. How dare he carry his bed? This is the Sabbath day. Now, it would be worth our time to take a moment to briefly understand the nature of the Jewish Sabbath at the time of Jesus Christ. According to the Old Testament law, the Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest. God made it very clear through his word, beginning in Exodus 16, that no work was to be done in the nation of Israel on the seventh day of the week. As I was studying this, I came across somewhat of a revelation. You know, so often we think about the law that God had given to Israel, and we thought, well, how easy would it have been for them in, in the extent that they at least had a checklist. They had everything enumerated, thing by thing by thing. But, you know, as I studied the Sabbath, I realized that that's not really true. God gave them a framework for the Sabbath, but he didn't give them much more than that. The Sabbath would become one of the most important observances that was enforced by the Pharisees in the time of their strong religious influence in Israel. And after all, this is not necessarily a bad thing. Wanting to obey God's Sabbath as a requirement given by the law is not bad. But the problem is that as it went from generation to generation to generation, as they carried this through, the definition of work changed. 
See, because God in the scriptures never very clearly defined what it was that they could and could not do upon the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, being as they were, wanting to be very particular about observing the laws of God, and this began back in the days um, just after Nehemiah, very sincerely. But they said, how is it that we can, we can best observe God's law? And so they began to expound upon ways in which the Sabbath ought not be, be what they ought to do, what they ought not to do, ways in which the Sabbath could be broken. See, there are very few Old Testament examples of those who offended the Sabbath day. In Exodus 35.3, kindling was prohibited on the Sabbath day. A man tried to kindle a fire and he was rebuked, as a matter of fact, stoned for gathering wood to kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. So the Pharisees saw that and they said, okay, kindling is a no. No kindling. In Exodus 16.29 and Numbers 15.32-36, there was a prohibition against gathering of manna and gathering of firewood. So they thought, okay, kindling, no, no kindling of a fire. Manna, or gathering manna, firewood, okay, no gathering. No gathering, no kindling. Then they would look to Nehemiah 13.19, which speaks of a prohibition against carrying burdens on the Sabbath day. Okay, so we can't kindle, we can't gather, and we can't carry burdens on the Sabbath day. Well, Pastor, what else is there in the scripture about people who offended the Sabbath? What else can we apply to this idea of Sabbath? That's it. That is all that the Holy Scriptures gives us on those things that were counted as problems, as prohibitions to the Sabbath day. Well, this isn't very helpful, is it? Kindling, carrying of burdens, and gathering. But the Pharisees took this framework and in their zeal began looking for ways to define what was and was not acceptable on the Sabbath. In their attempt to define the Sabbath, their main framework fell back to God's Sabbath on the seventh day of creation. Well, God rested on the seventh day, we recall, and what was it he was resting from? Creation. Creation. And so they, they, they used creative works as the framework for Sabbath day prohibition. If it was a creative work, then it was a Sabbath day prohibition because God rested from creative works on the seventh day. So, creative works, seventh day, uh, kindling, gathering, carrying of burdens, these are things. And so, surrounding this framework of creation, they established 39 creative acts that were explicitly prohibited on the Sabbath. These would be things such as sowing, plowing, weaving, planting, Creative works that were prohibited on the Sabbath. On top of these 39, see these weren't 39 explicit prohibitions. These were 39 categories of prohibitions. And on top of these 39 categories of prohibitions were thousands and thousands of individual applications to any number of possible Sabbath day scenarios to explicitly enforce the Sabbath while still allowing some degree of living. It's kind of like the United States tax code. It's just 
piles of things on top of things on top of things. And as a new scenario pops up, they say, okay, let's add this scenario to the tax code. And then, so they add it. And then a new something pops up. Well, that's an exploitation, so let's add a new scenario. So as each scenario came into play for literally hundreds of years, they keep adding prohibition after prohibition. You can't do this. You can't do this. Oh, now we have this thing popping up in culture. Well, that means we can't do this. And they kept heaping rules on top of rules on top of rules for the Sabbath day. I won't go into detail on all of these applications, uh, all of these regulations, excuse me, but one modern day application, the Jews still observe the Sabbath and they still observe these heavy regulations in many ways. One example of how meticulous these laws have become, the ways in which modern Jewish rabbis have taken great pains to distinguish is the use of motors and engines on the Sabbath day. They allow the use of a motor, but they strictly forbid the use of a combustible engine on the Sabbath day. Why? Because a combustible engine requires kindling of fire. Because when those pistons shoot, there must be an explosion that causes those pistons to move. That's kindling fire. Therefore, using a combustible engine is prohibited on the Sabbath day. Whereas, if you use an electric motor, you're okay. Because there's no combustion, so the electric motor is okay. This, this, is, this is what we're talking about. These are the kind of lines that were being drawn for Sabbath day regulation. And as technologies increased, as cultures changed, they would just keep heaping regulations on top of reg regulations. Well, it is sufficient to say that the Jews were quite horrified to see a man on the Sabbath day carrying the burden of his bed. This man was carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. So the leaders questioned him on his actions. How dare you do this on the Sabbath day? To which he replied in verse 11, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Simply put, this guy said, Take up your bed and walk. I haven't walked for 38 years. Walking sounded pretty good. He told me to do it. I stood up and I did it. And I'm obeying him because, hey, he just healed me of my infirmity of 38 years. Well, the Jews demanded who this man was. But the healed man didn't know See, Jesus had quickly left because of the multitude. He didn't know who he was. It is not until a later time, as we look in the passage, that Jesus found the man again in the temple. No doubt Jesus had recognized fairly easily and quickly that this was the man who had healed him. And when Jesus saw him again, he told the man in verse 14, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now this statement is not without some level of confusion because we do not know the exact context in which Jesus Christ is speaking. However, what we do know from Scripture helps us rule out what Jesus is not saying to the man. Jesus is not telling the man, he's not calling the man, excuse me here, unto saving faith for not sinning. Sin no more and you'll be saved. Sin no more and you won't go to hell. That, that's, not what, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not equating sinning no more explicitly with saving faith as a requirement for salvation. We know that because we know that all men are sinners and even after salvation men sin. And you do not lose your salvation when you sin. We know that from scripture. 
We know from the teaching of Job that Jesus was not attributing necessarily the man's physical ailment to his sin nature. This understanding is substantiated by Christ himself in John 9, verse 3, and Luke 13, 1 through 5, as the disciples look at the man and say, what, ha- what sin has he done or has his parents done that this man would be born blind? And Jesus Christ said, it is for neither but for the glory of God. This being understood, however, it is possible that the man's 38-year ailment had had been a natural consequence of some previous lifestyle of sin. Maybe some sinful choice in the past had caused him to have this ailment, this disease, this physical problem. And while the physical damage of that sin had been healed by Jesus, the spiritual temptation to sin was not healed simply because his body was healed. So perhaps it was that Jesus Christ knew of his sin from the past and said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That is a possibility. But it's this phrase, lest a worse thing come unto you, that really stuck out to me. See, because what could have been worse than a 38-year disease-ridden body? What is the worst thing that could come unto him? Well, some have said it's the consequence of losing that second chance through more disease, as we just mentioned. Maybe if he continues in that sin, he'd get the disease again and he'd have to suffer the consequences of losing the second chance Jesus had given him. Some have said that the consequence of sinking even deeper into a a sinful lifestyle uh, because of the grace of God that has been extended to him. So God has extended this grace. He has refused this grace and would fall deeper into a sinful lifestyle. Maybe that was the worst thing. That would come unto him. I think the best insight into what Jesus Christ is saying here is found in the epistles. Is found in the teachings of the Apostle Peter. Turn with me very quickly to 2 Peter 2. I don't ask you to turn very often, so I never feel bad when I ask you to do so. Uh, I perhaps maybe should ask you to turn more often. However, uh, your pastor being how he is, he tends to kind of lose his train of thought when he slows down in such a manner. So he doesn't ask you to do it often, but I would like you to see this. Second Peter 2, we'll begin in verse 17 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Peter is describing here false teachers and he says, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried away with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, Through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning." For it hath been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And so we see this phrase right there at the end of verse 20. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Peter referencing here this thought that is also referenced specifically to Jesus Christ, lest a worse thing come 
unto you. Now, Peter is not speaking of the men who are saved in this passage. It is speaking of men who were clean and escaped um, in this passage. It's speaking of those particular false teachers. False teachers who have come to a knowledge of the truth, but rather for carnal gain, twist this truth, corrupt this truth in order to gain the following of the spiritually simple. We see this all the time in society. We see this in various cults. We see this in various um, groups that arise where men are twisting the truth. They are perverting the truth. They read the words of God. They understand the words of God, but they choose rather to take the words of God and twist them and corrupt them in order to carry away the minds of the simple. And it is stated that to these men, their latter end, the end of their corruption is worse than if they had never even known the truth at all. And so I believe that Jesus Christ is speaking in a similar vein with this man in John 5. This man who had been healed had full personal knowledge of the person and power of Jesus Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean that he believed on Jesus Christ unto salvation, but he did have enough faith to get up and walk when Jesus told him to. And now he's in the temple. Presumably, he realized, I need to be in the temple. This is, this, is, this is God that did this for me. God has healed me. And perhaps in his mind, he was committing himself to some devotion to God. And so Jesus Christ looks at him and he says, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Don't take this truth that you have been given Don't take the knowledge of the Savior that you have been given and allow yourself to fall into sin and reject this truth lest a worse thing come unto thee. It'll be worse for you in the latter end than at the beginning. It'll be worse for you now than when you were sitting for 38 years in your infirmity. So it is for those who know the truth and reject it. To be quite honest, it would have been better if they had never even learned it then that they would find themselves in a state where they have convinced themselves that the truth, they have twisted the truth to the point where even when they hear the truths of God's word, they interpret them in error. This is the danger of many cults. That Why is it almost more dangerous? It probably is more dangerous when a person gets caught up in a cult than when they have no religion at all when we knock on their door on a Thursday night. Because now we have to get them to the point where they, we undo everything that they think they know about the scriptures because they're receiving false truth. You have to undo all of that and help them to see the truth of God's word before they can even receive that truth. And so their latter end is worse than the beginning. It's worse for them now that they're entrenched in this religion than if they'd never had any religion at all when the truth finally comes and presents itself to them. The latter end is worse than the beginning. And so Jesus Christ says, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. That is your pastor's personal interpretation of what Jesus Christ is saying here. I presented a couple of other ideas. If you like one of those better, I think that there's scriptural substantiation for all of them. I just, based upon the parallel in 2 Peter 2, this is the conclusion that your pastor has come to. Well, following this man's interaction with Jesus in the temple, he went to the Pharisees and informed them that the man who had healed him was a man named Jesus. The Pharisees, therefore, began to persecute Jesus. 
And the text states in verse 16 that they even desired and sought to slay him because he healed this man and commanded him to carry a burden on the Sabbath day. In the minds of these leaders, Jesus had profaned the most sacred of God's laws and therefore, just like those in the Old Testament who were caught kindling fire and gathering sticks and gathering manna, they were worthy of death. Well, then Jesus makes them even angrier. Because his reply to them in verse 17 says that he was simply doing the work of his father. I'm simply doing the work of my father, God the Father, therefore making himself equal with God. Do you see the blindness of the Pharisees here? Can you imagine a man has been sitting at the pool of Bethesda? We don't know how long. Let's, let's go conservative. The man had been there five years. Let's be conservative. He, he may have been there 38 years for all we know. But we'll be conservative. He, he'd been there five years, let's say. The Pharisees, of course, they're, they're around the temple quite often. They're around and they see these people on the, on the porches, the five porches on, at the pool of Bethesda. And they see him. He's there every day. He's there all day. He's waiting for this to stir. They know this man. He's around. He's asking people for money. He's, he's trying to be supported. He needs bread. He needs food. He needs these things. He can't get around very well. Maybe, uh, maybe the Pharisees in their uh, self-righteousness every once in a while condescended to bring some bread to these poor sinners at the pool of Bethesda. And so they would come and they would, they would feed them in, in their self-righteousness perhaps. And so they, they perhaps knew this man. And after a 38-year infirmity, this man is carrying their bed. And they don't stop to question how it is that after 38 years, when the waters had not stirred that day, or when he's tried and tried again, and he's never made it into the pool before these others, how it is that this impotent man is now walking after 38 years? But they don't even see the man. They only see his bed in his hand that he's carrying on the Sabbath day. God forbid. What blindness. Do we have that blindness in our own lives from time to time? As Jesus replies to the Pharisees in verses 19 through 23, he makes it very clear that the man who is acceptable in the eyes of God is not the man who follows a strict list of self-imposed standards, but rather a man whose actions are in line with God's character and God's word. Jesus tells them in verse 19, that those things which he does are nothing more or less than the extension of God's will. In other words, if Jesus said it, then God the Father is saying it also. If Jesus did it, then those actions are in line with the Father's will. Jesus' words are God, are God the Father's words. Jesus' actions are God the Father's will. This is what Jesus Christ is saying. He asserts that the Father's stamp of approval is upon his ministry and declares unto them that they will see much greater works than that which they saw when this man took up his bed and walked. The greatest of these works rests in the authority given by the Father to the Son over judgment and over eternal life. And this is the great work which Jesus Christ is referencing. Next week we'll see that this work continues to the resurrection of the dead. And so Jesus Christ is laying the foundation here with the Pharisees that, hey... You see how this man just rose and walked? This is nothing compared to the power, the authority that God has given me. This being for the purpose, Jesus states in verse 23, that all men should honor the Son as they have honored the Father. 
By extension then, the man who does not honor the Son does not honor God the Father either. And so, as he has done many times before, Jesus Christ again appeals to the authority which God has given him to work miracles as a definitive proof of his deity and of his messianic authority. But again, as we have seen time and time again, the religious leaders in Israel rejected this authority. They relied more upon adherence to the personal standards that they had set up in application to the principles of God's word than the divine miracles of God. And this brings us to our second principle and our question this evening. Whose side are you on? The second principle, your purpose is to honor God, not to honor religion. When we study through the final verses of John 3, we talked about the benefits and the dangers of religion. Religion is a framework that facilitates proper worship of God. Religion is an outworking of the devotion which we owe to God through a determined and principled obedience to His will. Religion is the physical manifestation of a heart dedicated to the truth. Religion is not at all a bad thing. In fact, we at Legacy Baptist Church might term ourselves to be fairly religious people. Certainly the world around us would see us as fairly religious people. However, we must be careful as religious people that our dedication is not to these physical outworkings of our worship through religion, but that our dedication is to the honor of the God because of whom we've set up the religion. Does that make sense? We don't worship the religion. We don't worship what we're doing. We're worshiping the God that has compelled us to do it. We set up a system of religious order, standards in our lives based upon the principles of God's word, a way in which we worship, the means by which we worship, the manner in which we worship. We set it all up in our lives because we have a God in heaven who we love. And we take the commands of God's word and we draw out principles from those commands and we take those principles and we apply standards to our lives whereby we feel we can best honor God with our lives, both corporately in a corporate worship setting as well as individually in our lives. But if we lose this balance and begin to become loyal to the principles of our religious standards, above the principles of God's word, then we run the risk of honoring our religion over and above our honor for God. And in doing so, we might find that we have turned our own religious practices into legalistic idols that serve not to honor God, but to bring ourselves honor. Not to draw us closer to God, but to magnify our own self-sufficiency while giving us a false confidence that we are serving God. And that is exactly what we see again in John 5 with these Jewish leaders. Their twisting of the Sabbath law through heavy-handed ordinances was simply a symptom of a much greater problem. They had begun to trust in their own ability to please God through strict adherence to their own application of God's law. And in doing so, they've lost any dependence upon God, any dependence upon His Word, and therefore any honor for God. They were simply attempting to impress other men 
with their outward displays of false piety and hypocritical religion. And so Jesus Christ is performing great miracles. Men that have not walked for 38 years, suffering infirmity for 38 years, carries his bed and walks. And he goes completely unnoticed in the minds of those whose honor was devoted to themselves through religious fulfillment rather than to God through sincere devotion. And this same danger rests upon you and I in this room today. As people who hold to strong convictions and standards of religious devotion, we are particularly, particularly excuse me, susceptible to the same hypocrisy and spiritual blindness that the Pharisees exhibited. Due to our strong and unified standards, it can be our tendency, particularly in the corporate setting, in a, in a church setting, to judge other people's spirituality in relation to the degree to which their religious practices or their manner of living meet up with our own standards. And this can become very, very extreme. As missionaries come through here, um, I like to ask them about their experiences. The reason why, I, uh, as far as deputation goes, the reason why I particularly like to ask them is because your pastor has a vision for missionary support. And it's a vision that doesn't involve giving very small amounts of money to very many missionaries, but rather giving a very large amount of money to very few missionaries to get them on the field faster, to allow them to have more time to spend doing the work of God and less time reporting to hundreds of churches that have given them very small amounts of money. And so because of this burden on your pastor's heart, I often ask them about their experiences with deputation. If they, as personally as missionaries, would feel comfortable if a church gave them a very large sum of money where they would need to be trusting God to provide for that church as much as, as the church was trusting uh, God to bless the missionary. And through that experience, I have found many, many discouraging stories of churches who these missionaries would go into and due to various strange applications of biblical standards in their churches, they would outright reject supporting certain missionaries for very strange reasons. For reasons that fall entirely upon man's standards. Not really at all upon the principles of God's word. People who have become so unified under a banner of standards that they are no longer really seeing that God has a great work to be done here amidst these people that may be a little bit different from them but aren't doing anything wrong biblically. Now I want to be careful with this particular application today because I don't want us to, I don't want you to get the idea that pastor saying standards are not necessary. I don't even want to be sounding as if I'm minimizing standards. I believe in strong standards. I hope that all of you who sit underneath my voice today know that. I'm not trying to imply that the standards we hold do not matter to God. But as I have mentioned many times in the past, our standards are applications of definitive biblical commands and principles through prayer, through meditation on the scriptures, and through a desire to conform our lives to God's will. And so Legacy Baptist Church has set up particular standards in our church setting. You have set up particular standards for the family setting. 
Legacy Baptist Church has standards by which we have dictated what pastor and what those who minister on this, the, the, um, behind the pulpit or, or on this stage are going to adhere to with dress code. If you're going to minister corporately, you're going to dress a certain way. That's a standard we've set up. We have a standard for the scriptures that we use. No one will ever stand behind this pulpit and read from any other scripture than the King James Version. That is a standard that we have set up in our church. We have set up particular music standards. Standards that keep us from dangerous implications, dangerous influences, dangerous associations, dangerous sounds, and dangerous messages. And so we have set up these standards in our lives. This is wonderful. This is good. This is important. And it shouldn't be any other way. But... When you look at others and you judge their spirituality in relation to your, the way that you have applied the biblical principles to your lives and your personal standards, you are flirting a very dangerous line. Because now you are judging another man's spirituality based upon his application of biblical standards. And so we understand that just because a person doesn't wear what we wear to church, it doesn't make them less spiritual than us. So we understand that just because a person does not have the same music standards as us, it does not make them less spiritual than us. And we understand that just because a person is not loyal to the King James Version of the Bible, that does not necessarily make them less spiritual than us. Now, I believe the text issue is extremely important. Music is extremely important. Modesty is extremely important. But just because God has not yet convicted their hearts, or because they have blind spots in certain areas, or because they have not applied principles in the way that we have, that does not make them ungodly people. It simply means they have blind spots. Or it simply means that they have applied this, the biblical principles in a different way. So pastor, how do we know? Does that mean that we can never judge? Does that mean that we can never discern between whether a person is applying things properly or not? Well, no, it does not at all. Certainly, we can judge a man by the fruit of his actions. How do we know in John 5 that the Pharisees were wrong in their rigid application of the Sabbath principle? Other than the fact that Jesus told the man to take up his bed and walk. Because their rigid and religious zeal caused them to reject the other truths of God. They rejected the miracle of God in their zeal for this false standard. Very clearly, the fruit of this standard was rejecting a miracle of God. When we see the fruit of the standard, we know the standard is wrong. Now, what if they had these rigid applications to the standards, but when Jesus Christ healed this man, they said, praise God, look, Jesus Christ just healed man, this is our Messiah. Well, then we know something. We know that these standards that they have placed in their lives have not become their God. But rather, these standards they have erected are in honesty before God, desiring to do what is right before God. And when they recognize truth, they follow the truth. But that's not what happened here. They had set up a standard. And when truth came and appeared, when truth came in the form of an impotent man being healed after 38 years of infirmity, they rejected the truth in lieu of their standard, in loyalty to their false standard. And so we ask, how do we know when our standards have become self-righteous and hypocritical? 
when we begin to reject those that are exhibiting the fruits of righteousness in their lives simply because they do not hold to the same standards or the same biblical interpretations that you do. Here's the danger. Right now, Reformed theology is very big in larger Christian circles. Reformed theology, of course, preaches that which we would adamantly reject as far as the nature of our God, the character of our God, in regard to salvation, things such as unconditional election. But does that mean that a man that calls himself Reformed or a man that holds to these tenets is an ungodly man? Certainly not. You see the fruit of some of the men that preach coming out of the Reformed movement, and they are men who are doing great things for God. Are they wrong in an area? Yes, they are wrong. They are wrong. The Bible clearly states it as far as we're concerned. I don't know why they can't see it. But that doesn't make them ungodly. Do you see the distinguishing factors? Do you see the, the differences? When we judge men in such a fashion, we have become pharisaical in our own religious practices. And so I encourage each man, each woman, each child to humbly ask the Holy Spirit today to reveal in your own heart perhaps areas where the wonderful, strong, and good biblical standards in your lives have caused you to trust in your self-righteousness instead of honoring God with those standards. What elements of your religious faith have given you a heart of judgmentalism instead of a heart of obedience to God's word? What areas of your life have you deemed to be correct simply because of the method of living that you have chosen? Do you think that you are godly simply because of what you wear or simply because of what church you attend or how often you attend church or because of the Bible you use or the music you listen to or the places you do go or the places you don't go? Do you judge others as ungodly simply because they do not hold to your same standards? If you do, and it's a great tendency in our lives, you are drifting. And we need to correct those elements and ensure that we are doing what we're doing for the honor of God and not as an opportunity to judge others for their, for, for their shortcomings. And so I ask a question, whose side are you on? And that is the question for today. Are you on God's side, living in simplicity and sincerity before God, serving Him in spirit and in truth, living out the standards that you have applied from the biblical principles and commands? Or are you on your own side, living in constant comparison to those around you, judging your own relationship with God on a sliding scale based upon your perceived religious actions as compared with the religious failures of those who are around you. Let us take a lesson today from the interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus Christ and ensure that we are living lives of humble adherence to the principles of the Word of God in order that God in all things might be glorified through our lives. Let's pray.